Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network in World Affairs, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Margot Tudor, a host on the channel World Affairs. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Christine Shrovel Patel about her new book, Marketing Global Justice, The Political Economy of International Criminal Law, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Uh, Christine is a reader in law at the University of Warwick. Christine, welcome to the interview. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, and I was wondering if I, if we could begin the interview by you just giving us a bit of a better idea about your background, telling us a bit more about yourself, where you grew up and how you became to be an academic. Yeah, great. So I uh, grew up both in the UK and in Germany, but I had my main uh, legal training in Germany, where I did an undergraduate degree at uh, the University of Heidelberg, where law is really uh, taught in a very formalist way. It really is stripping out any of the politics, the philosophy, the history of law. It's very much looking at the present and um, understanding um recent legislation and what the courts are doing and so on um and i suppose there was always a little bit of a dissatisfaction about just seeing law as this apolitical um formalist body and so when i came to the uk to do my masters a whole different um part of thinking in legal terms was opened up for me, which I found much more um, engaging and inspiring and really allowed uh, me to think more broadly. Uh, So I did my PhD then at King's College London and really in a critical legal tradition. And um, after that, I went to the Netherlands. During my PhD, actually, I spent some months in the Netherlands at the International Criminal Court, which is relevant to uh, the book and and, uh, why I eventually wrote the book. 
But at the time I was researching on global constitutionalism and uh, I wasn't really uh, that interested yet in international criminal law. And um, yeah, I came back to the UK where I took up my first permanent lectureship at the University of Liverpool, which was really fantastic because um, it gave me the opportunity not only to be in a, a fantastic city with lots of political struggle as well and interesting history, but also a department that really allowed me to pursue my teaching and research interests. And now I'm at the University of of Warwick, um, which is known as a university or uh, certainly many departments are known um, for being open to thinking about contemporary struggle and radical politics so it suits me really well to be to be at Warwick. Fantastic that's so fantastic to hear I've uh, yeah Warwick is such a a brilliant university so um, I'm not surprised that you've settled in really well there Um, and so I just wanted to kind of bring back you were just talking about you're doing global thinking about global constitutionalism and so obviously this book is your second monograph after this first monograph on global constitutionalism in international legal perspective and so I kind of wanted to ask you how did you have that shift how did that that second that tricky second album come about with uh with this book and and how did marketing global justice and um become the book it is today yeah i think so when i was researching on global constitutionalism i was thinking about the universalizing of very particular values political and legal and how they had been, how they had traveled from this Western Enlightenment tradition to the rest of the world. And one of the aspects that became really important to me when I was thinking about global constitutionalism was hegemony. And hegemony understood in a Gramscian sense of how how concepts can be imported or exported rather um, to other parts of the world in particular from the global north to the global south and when I then went to do an internship at the International Criminal Court where I was much more interested actually in treaty making I was sort of interested in public international law rather than international criminal law so I was interested in how the International Criminal Court interacted with other international organizations how those treaties and agreements um, worked. And I realized that there were many parallels with the project of international, between the project of international criminal law and the project of global constitutionalism, that universalizing of particular values and how those have traveled from one part of the world to the other part of the world. That's sort of really what, what connected my project. I went to, I have to admit that I started my internship in 2007 at the International Criminal Court, really thinking that this might be a different institution. I had bought into the idea of the International Criminal Court being a counter-hegemonic institution in some way. I'd read the Rome Statute beforehand, I looked at the website, I thought that this institution also because of its positioning 
in a subtle way, but in a significant way against the US as well at that time, I thought that that really made a difference. And then when I was at the International Criminal Court and and got an insight into the working of it, I became extremely disillusioned um, and came back from The Hague thinking at some point I really need to write about this and work through this disillusionment in in a productive way. Um, So I think there was a lot of um, uh, there was a a lot of emotion being (laughs) overlaid onto this experience in The Hague that I wanted to to work through and understand in a more structural sense. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot of the themes then really do take forward from that first book into this book, because, yeah, definitely. And when I was reading um, Marketing Global Justice, I was really fascinated about how you use this concept of marketing to think about power and to use um, that idea of political economy to kind of access some of those um, perhaps uh, more high-level ideas of hegemony and high politics is really, really fascinating. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you, in your book, specifically define marketing, because that's kind of an interesting aspect at the beginning of your book and and how that relates specifically with the global justice sector. I mean, specifically with the ICC, as you've said. I really enjoyed your section on legalistic morality, legalised morality, sorry. So it'd be great to hear more about that. So I think that marketing in itself, saying that marketing plays a role in international criminal law is probably not surprising to anyone because the terminologies of of marketing are part of international criminal law. People talk about stakeholders and they talk about persuasion and they talk about communication a lot. But what I found was missing in that analysis were... Um, is the the material aspect of that, right? So it's often used in a discursive way. So to talk about the the, the logos of international criminal law is often then it, it, it stays on that sort of superficial level of thinking about image and image making and, and communication. When I started researching on marketing, I realized that actually there is, a much more profound aspect here to be um, uh, to be worked through, and that um, particularly focuses on the distributive aspects of marketing. Marketing is not only about communication; it's also about how resources are distributed, and then also potentially not redistributed. Um, and so the question of persuasion through marketing that I really highlight at the the beginning of the book and the the question of distraction and attraction to certain issues that happen through marketing can can be seen in what I call the global justice sector in that certain aspects are spotlighted but they're not just spotlighted discursively they're spotlighted in terms of resources the aspects that are really highlighted um, in terms of anti-impunity, that is then where all of the, the global justice resources have gone at the expense of a much broader, much more radical understanding of global justice. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And so 
thinking about the section that kind of flows on from that, thinking about those material aspects, I was really fascinated in in drawing attention to the 1990s. You know, there's this particular moment for marketing um, and having um, that neoliberal moment almost in the 1990s at this simultaneous moment for international criminal law. Um, and uh, obviously, when we think about the Rome Statute, when we think about uh, the ICTR, the ICTY, all of those different movements all happening in the 1990s. Um, it's it's really this transformative moment. And so I was wondering if um, you could just kind of take us through what drew you to that decade as really kind of the opening of your book um, and, and how indeed those kind of industries brought were brought into this profitable relationship one another um, at this particular moment. Looking at histories of international criminal law through the 1990s is not the usual way to start talking about the history of anti-impunity. A lot of recent um, studies have focused on that period of imperialism uh, in the 19th century and go back further to to the 16th century and all those periods in between. Or they start after the Second World War in 1945. And looking at the 1990s as a much more recent history, then um, connects all of those different periods, but really focuses on what was specific about that time of tribunalization and institutionalization of the idea of anti-impunity. So, the rhetorical connection between the 1990s and 1945 is really key to how I understand that history of international criminal law, because, of course, histories of of, uh, international criminal law that start up with 1945, they talk about the um, overcoming of um, the, the, the dealing with the the crimes committed during the Holocaust through the Nuremberg um, and Tokyo tribunals. And then they sort of tend to say that there was then a period in which not much happened. uh, And then the new world order started, this new universal idea of internationalism began in the 1990s. Um, and that's when when all these um, uh, all the resources could be put in finally could finally be put into the tribunals. But th- again, thinking about it materially, I was interested in how was it that these concepts of anti impunity suddenly in the specifically in the nineteen nineties took on so much purchase, and why was it that those who had been advocating for a permanent international criminal court and had been advocating for tribunals and had been advocating for the idea of anti-impunity. Why was it that specifically at that time it grew, it exploded as an industry? And this is where I see an important connection with um, branding um, and the corporations moving to ideas of um, transcending the product and certainly a, a big influence for, for me was reading Naomi Klein's No Logo in which she um, looks at how corporate uh, uh, corporations in the 1990s moved from thinking about products and um, to thinking about ideas right so going from the the, the concrete 
thing which is being produced through labor to then moving to the, the, the abstract notion of the brand. And I saw lots of not only parallels, but I saw um, um, a dialectic there um, that corporations were speaking about values and today we can we can see that in uh, this sort of corporatized idea of activism in particular, and that also international organizations themselves were learning from branding strategies, were, themselves were um, seeking this, this idea of going um, for the, the big um, uh, the big ideas rather than feeling, a uh, obligation to show how this was really being implemented. And this is something that I saw very concretely at the International Criminal Court, where very few cases were being heard and very few cases are still being heard. And at the same time, this rhetoric of global justice is so central to its working and also its attraction of resources. So the 1990s, um, I think, is fascinating as a decade, um, post-Cold War period in which markets were opening to um, the East and also more to the global South. These corporations were um, really centering on that idea of competition and were institutionalizing that International organizations themselves were stabilizing that process, right? So we're not talking only about the International Criminal Court. We're talking about the WTO um, and international economic law. Uh, we're talking about the um, uh, the international financial institutions and um, with, um, a, a global system in which the market becomes dominant, supported through states, supported through international law. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's all that was what was so powerful about that first chapter. I think definitely it was it was it was such an important decade for bringing together those ideas that perhaps before then had had existed in cooperation to it to various extents. But really this this moment and I love your use of Naomi Klein. I think that book um, is really brought into the centre of how we think about branding. And I suppose that kind of brings me on to my next question about the political economy of visibility and value, because, of course, that's that's a really important facet of how you think about what the market value of the global justice, how those um, sectors work together in alignment together. And um, I, I think it also provides a lot of lessons for scholars of humanitarianism when thinking about how that visibility and value are kind of negotiated. Um, and I was wondering if you could just expand um, on, on for our listeners on the idea of political economy of global justice and what is seen as global justice, quote unquote, what, what that visibility mean, or invisibility means to you. So I work through the question of visibility through uh, the analytic of spectacle in, in the book, um, very much influenced by the, the work of Guy Debord, where visibility, um, and I connect that to the contemporary idea of the attention economy. So where visibility, again, is about attracting resources um, and um, uh, uh, um, particular um, uh, ideas, particular um, people 
become commodified for this attention economy. Now, I work through that in particular by thinking about the distributive um, uh, effects of stereotyping. And a very central aspect of the book is to think about how victims of global injustice are being exploited. Now, that that's probably quite a, a provocative thing to say, simply like that, victims of injustice are being um, exploited. So I work through it quite forensically in the book to um, um, show what I mean. Um, when um, in the global north, humanitarianism is invoked and the images of victims are used, this is often for the um, a, a donor community that is in the global north that is considered to be this seeing and knowing and giving community. And then a distinction is created between those in the global south who are the receiving on on the receiving side who are um, those who are seen rather than those who are seeing so the really foregrounding of um of of images of victims and the stereotyping of images um, uh, of, of victims is really central to uh, this uh, attention economy. And now in the book, I, I explain that there is a certain racialized and feminized and infantilized um, image of victimhood, which is produced and reproduced in the global justice sector in order to attract resources. Because this is the most familiar and the most comfortable image of victimhood for this global uh, for this global north donor community. Yeah, and I think especially when we think about the commodification of that particular type of victimhood, it, it's really, really powerful. And obviously, you then go in to talk a little bit about the Coney 2012 campaign, which obviously is is a key example of how um, celebrity of global justice and perhaps um, the celebrity of particular forms of victimhood or how we imagine victimhood um, in the global north um, really frames the approaches of the global justice system to responses to global responses to and and how marketing really is integral to that process and so i suppose when we're thinking about the coney 2012 campaign what what drew your attention to that as as another moment as another important moment in your argument and and why it went so viral i suppose um at, in 2012 which is kind of 12 years since the Rome Statue's been or 13 years since the Rome Statue's been around and and what did this specifically mean for that sector at that point? Yeah, Coney 2012 was absolutely key for the global justice sector for identifying what the global justice sector was about and also for the International Criminal Court at that time. So the International Criminal Court had issued an arrest warrant against Joseph Coney um, who um, was 
um, by the International Criminal Court were trade as central in the um, uh, crimes being committed in Uganda at that time. And since the International Criminal Court doesn't have its own police force and um, there's no um, international army that can act on these arrest warrants, the International Criminal Court is very reliant on the communication of the arrest warrant and someone taking that on um, and someone saying, well, okay, we'll arrest Kony, but we'll not arrest only arrest him in the country where he is, but we will then also send him to The Hague um, to stand trial there. So Kony 2012 came at a great point in time for the ICC because that communication then really meant that it it went global. The idea of the International Criminal Court as this central institution for catching the worst criminals that are out there was was really um, uh, put together in this 30-minute video that then went viral. Now, what was so fascinating about the whole Coney 2012 campaign by the NGO Invisible Children and, you know, the prosecutor of the ICC has a cameo in the in the video and so on. So it's very much tied um, together with, with the, the, uh, the, the whole idea of the ICC. Um, but what was so central about Coney 2012 was this idea of let's make Coney famous. Mm. And now I think at that time that was, um, and now also that's normalized in order to attract attention to an issue that is connected to the idea of being famous of celebrity, right? So George Clooney says in this part in the, in the Coney 2012 video says, um, you know, uh, Coney 2012, he should be on the cover of Time magazine like I have been. Um, and there's this cult of celebrity which is applied to um, war crimes, crimes against humanity um, and um, atrocities. And that sort of glamorizing of global injustice is something that actually I think is is normalized in our in our society of celebrity humanitarianism but is something that i think we should be very uncomfortable about um because then certain issues again are spotlighted but they're not spotlighted because um those who have been affected um uh, are bringing this forward through political struggle or um because there is some kind of political process in which certain aspects are being spotlighted, but rather it is an NGO that is using marketing techniques that is using other celebrities in order to um, um, work with that idea of celebrity. And again, what's really interesting about Coney 2012 is that it was mostly an online campaign which means that it went viral through people clicking on it, sharing it, uh, voicing their um, how much they care about this issue. But at the same time, it just 
didn't really translate to a political activism on the streets where those in the affected areas felt that this was their issue or those um, even those who had shared the, the video multiple times then um, really translated that into protest or other forms of political activism. It was really this, this viral um, uh, uh, perspective only on uh, happening through social media, really. Um, and what struck me about that is that not only sort of the collectivism that you might talk about, but also how activism is turned into a commodity and how it's essentially consumers who then, you know, through um, supporting the Kony 2012 campaign or supporting Invisible Children, they get then a bracelet, they get a poster, and so on. This is it's this this um, consumerist idea of of global um, justice and how to fight global injustice. So Kony 2012 is absolutely central to thinking um, about marketing uh, and marketing global justice. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it's part of such a a longer trajectory of kind of celebrity humanitarianism from kind of even abolitionist movements about uh, sugar, boycotting sugar that had been picked on plantations and then you kind of bringing through those lineations to kind of band-aid and then it's almost like an explosion of all of those ideas brought together with technology at a particular moment and you've got the facilitation of the ICC and how it's being how it's framing itself at that particular moment um, and I suppose a follow-up question to that is 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 how Kony 2012 has affected future marketing campaigns you know as if has it completely transformed how people at home in donors in the global north conceive of their own relationship now with global justice is it far more kind of an a process where they can do it from their couch or that kind of couch of it, couch activism and or is it or is it has it benefited donor recipient relationships or do you think it has really kind of re-entrenched those hegemonic um, relationships that you were discussing at the beginning so the backlash against Kony 2012 and against Invisible Children was almost immediate. And just as much as the campaign was in the foreground, so was then um, the, 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 the critique of Invisible Children itself. And the marketing literature um, is actually very, very mixed um, on this backlash. So on the one hand, it shows that questions of humanitarianism can go viral, just like, you know, some kind of um, singer says something and that can go viral, right? So this this idea of humanitarianism going viral, that is obviously something that, that the marketing literature is very interested in. But at the same time, this backlash is also very much at the forefront and thinking about um, how NGOs could go viral but then do better than invisible children. Um, and and this um, backlash was something that I bring out in the book and is a theme towards the end of the book that becomes quite prominent where I... Um, highlight that backlash is often 
understood in market terms. So the backlash against invisible children was a lot about, well, how much of the money is really going um, to uh, those, those affected communities? How much is going back into the organization itself? So how much is staying in the global north? I think those are all valid questions, right? Um and and the backlash also was about well you know this this white dude who who speaks through his his son um his young son right so the communication through the son in order to break down something that is inc- incredibly complex and simplifying it for a broad audience and so on so um the uh, that backlash i think um is um important but I felt like it doesn't get to the aspects that are key here, which is, again, the commodification of the children that have been affected in those communities um, of the victims. Um, it's the, um, again, the, the, um, the making visible of certain things while invisibilizing other aspects or sanitizing other aspects because a a very important part of the Kony 2012 campaign was the um, lobbying of the Obama administration for military intervention in Uganda. And in fact, that was successful, right? So this is celebrated in in the video. Um, And um what i what i found was missing in that backlash against Kony 2012 from from many quarters um from the the marketing perspective from the ngos and uh, from from the more critical literature um were were bringing out really these these um issues of the um uh, of the structural inequality which is so much part of of um uh, the humanitarianism at display there. And that's why in the book, I make a distinction then between backlash, which is grounded in ideas of the market, making humanitarianism more efficient, for example, and um, contrasted with resistance, which is historically informed and in that context of Uganda takes into account the colonial histories, um, takes into account the exploitation of resources um, at that time. Um, aspects again that are often hidden um, are the the, the uh, important resource implications, and I try to connect those and I try to bring those into the Kony twenty twelve story in order to show what has been invisibilized um, uh, through not only the campaign itself, but also through the backlash against it. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, I mean, of course, Coney also fits into that very comfortable image that you were discussing earlier of of who a war criminal or a, someone who the ICC should be should be prosecuting looks like um, or acts like in a particular way. So it it fits a lot of the categories that um, that would have enabled that marketing to continue the extractive process. And so I think with the with the next chapter when you start discussing a little bit more that neoliberalism aspect and focusing a little bit more on the court itself. Um, I imagine for some of our listeners, it might be slightly difficult to imagine how the ICC can perform as a neoliberal um, agent um, or or have that kind of neoliberal market influence kind of shifting and, and shaping the court from, from its very beginning. Um, and I suppose it would be great for you to just kind of discuss that, but also uh, building on exactly what you were just talking about, how it how it's almost rebranded during moments of resistance as well um, and, and pushed back against um, any any criticism through those market ideals and uh, and methods of acting. That'd be great. Thank you. So on neoliberalism and, and the ICC, I really um, build on all the International Criminal Justice Project m- more generally. I really build on um, work um, done by uh, Kamari Clark and Tor Kriva and Riti Baz, who have shown that the focus on anti-impunity is at the expense of thinking structurally. Um, about justice. And I do that in the chapter on the International um, Criminal Court through expanding um, that work um, and and thinking about the the interactions there between other institutions and the International Criminal Court. Essentially, the question that I'm interested in there is – how is intervention on behalf of the International Criminal Justice Project creating markets? How is capital accumulated um, through the International Criminal Court's intervention? What markets is it enabling and what is the justification for those markets? So very much, again, thinking about the, the question of distraction. Marketing has a key um, a role to play there in distracting from the markets that are being um, made safe for investment um, through uh, the the involvement of uh, the um, of international organisations. Um, and here, I think yes, thinking about markets being made made safe for investment is probably a question that would not usually be one um, uh, looked at in, in international criminal law, that, which is so focused on individuals. It's so focused on identifying who are the perpetrators 
um, who the, the, the technicalities of, of the criminal law as well was there mens rea, were there accomplices, um, right? How do you attribute responsibility and so on? So all of those questions of criminal law mean that the question of the market and how capitalism works and how capitalism is connected to the concept of crime, um, that those those are tend to be hidden. And that that's where where my focus um, is on on the chapter on the ICC. Um, and one of the one of the aspects that I focused on in that chapter is the withdrawal um or uh well in in effect it was only one state that eventually withdrew but the the withdrawal announcements i was much more interested in of um south africa burundi and gambia and i interpret that as three states saying they no longer want to do the labor for the International Criminal Court. They had signed up to a counter-hegemonic institution that would take colonialism and um, contemporary forms of colonialism seriously. And what did they find? They found that the International Criminal Court was only focusing on African states, only focusing on African perpetrators, and was not the counter-hegemonic institution that they had thought it would be. And so they say, we're laying down our tools. We're we're going on strike. Um, We no longer want to be part of this institution if it is um, exploiting us for the benefit of um, those who are already in power, right? If If it's sustaining those hegemonic um. Uh, structures that um, have have th- these legacies from from colonialism and so on. It's so fascinating because it, uh, that particular those withdrawal announcements were so interesting in the sense of the, the the backlash from the global north, or particularly kind of in a British media audience, was well, they're withdrawing from justice like the concept of justice they are now resisting to whilst also at the same time the conversation about British and US crimes in Afghanistan was being pushed off the table and it was almost like the most explicit demonstration of double standards within this particular sector that I've ever seen um so yeah I, th- I that's that, it was such an interesting chapter thinking about how those market tools and those ways of resisting um, particular forms of, um, I suppose, accountability, or also just thinking about hegemony through market values is something that I, I don't know how, if any other scholars are thinking about for international criminal law. So yeah, definitely super fascinating. And I suppose bringing it back to the idea of marketing um, on, on your next chapter, thinking about how branding um, is absolutely crucial. And we've discussed a little bit about Naomi Klein's No Logo um, and I know a lot of um, I have a lot of colleagues that work on the UNHCR and US AIDS branding, making sure that their uniforms, their trucks, their food sacks are always visible um, in all their campaign marketing. And so I just wondered how branding has kind of played a role in shaping not only the public conceptions of global justice, but also its geography. So thinking about branding as as a geographic tool as well, I suppose we've mentioned The Hague before, but also thinking about um, other sites of justice as well. So 
um, how how the particular tribunalization, I suppose, as you've discussed, is particularly attached to ideas of geography and sites of justice. Yeah, so I within the global justice sector, I was interested in the book in the different actors um, and NGOs, as we've discussed with Kony twenty twelve um, and, and their campaigns. They're sort of an obvious choice in terms of who is competing in that global uh, justice sector. Um, a perhaps less obvious choice is to think about it, as you say, geographically. What states, um, what cities are competing in that global justice sector? In other words, what places are using global justice as a means of capital accumulation? And again, having lived in The Hague, um, looking at The Hague was an obvious choice because it has a city brand um, of um, a city of international peace and justice. Um, and I, I knew about this city brand because when, when you live in The, the Hague, you, you are aware of it. Um, but, but I was fascinated to see just again it goes it goes to that point of branding is not just about the rhetoric and the communication there's a whole industry there um there have been books written about um uh, the the branding of the hague and it's also considered as a example of very successful city branding because The Hague has not only attracted resources, it's attracted international organizations. It is the place of international justice, which means that it has uh, not only the professionals that have moved to The Hague, um, it's got the institutions, it's got the whole industry around it. It's got the restaurants, it's got the the, uh, the facilities staff, it's got the cleaning staff, um, it's got the housing and so on. So um, uh, it's a... Um, uh, it's a city that has thrived in terms of capital accumulation through highlighting its work on international justice. And being living in The Hague, that often feels quite bizarre because you find yourself at receptions, um, certainly uh, pre-COVID, uh, many receptions, um, with those advocates of international justice who speak about the importance of The Hague, the importance of this location for other parts of the world. And you sort of look around and, and think, well, I don't really see any representatives here of that other part of the world. Um, there's a real sort of celebration of this idea of, of international justice um, and the 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 image attached to it. Um, so um, yeah, the the city branding of of uh, the the Hague um, as a successful um, city brand of um, attracting resources on the basis of global justice, uh, I found um, very interesting. Um, and then I in in the chapter I I look at. Um, South Africa, and I look at Cambodia as other examples of place branding. So there's city branding, and then there's regional branding, and then there's state branding, nation state branding, and nation state branding, again, is a big industry. Um, 
there are people who have made their careers um, through this, most of them, interestingly, or perhaps not surprisingly, based in London. <laughs> um, that's where the, the, the nation branding uh, offices sit. Um, and this is about th- thinking about the, com- the commodification of the state, right? Thinking about ha- what messages... Um, can be simplified about a whole nation state and its people in order to attract tourism, in order to attract trade, and in order to attract investment. South Africa, I found, was very interesting because we spoke about the withdrawal from the International Criminal Court. And at that time, there was a big discussion in in South Africa about what that means, right? Um, different NGOs also within South Africa um, expressed their horror, really, at the state doing this. But also the, um, the, the business community, because the business community said, if we withdraw from the International Criminal Court, then we are harming our brand um, of... Um, stability and of internationalism and of global justice, right? So South Africa, of course, has an important history of of transitional justice, of of moving from an apartheid state to um, a democratic state uh, with all the problems that come with it. And I talk a little bit about that, that again in that transition, the, the, the prioritizing of neoliberalism there. Um, so the business community being concerned about South Africa withdrawing from the uh, uh, International Criminal Court was something that really fascinated me. And that disjuncture there also between um, um, city brands, regional brands, and nation state brands and the population, because there is an expectation that the population will live according to this brand. Um, And that means that certain aspects which are considered as marketable are foregrounded, and certain parts of history that are seen as not marketable, they're they're completely placed in the background. So if you look at um, the, the the nation branding of, um, or sorry, if you look at the city branding of The Hague, for example, you won't find anything about um, Dutch colonialism um, because it's not particularly marketable when you're putting yourself forward as the center of international justice. Um, and the same applies in um, South Africa, where certain aspects are highlighted, and then others through no political process, right? These are these are these are these are marketing executives that are making those decisions. What do we highlight about this state and its people, and how do we expect then state officials? How do we expect the population, the people, to act in accordance with that brand? And what might that do that could be damaging for the brand? Um, yeah, and the third example then in the book um, is of um, Cambodia, where um, uh, international justice has played a role through the um, uh, the extraordinary um, chambers, the ECCC, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of um, Cambodia. 
Um, and here I saw some different dynamics taking place in which um, there was not so much a state branding um, uh, infrastructure, but rather there was a disjuncture between the elites who could focus on the use of branding global justice and then those who have been marginalized in society, they're the ones who often focus on the dark sides of global injustice, trying to, um, so again, it, it shows a neoliberal uh, a mindset and trying to um, get some value out of dark episodes of its history and I, I say dark here because the the term that is used for this is dark tourism I'm going to see skulls I'm going to see um, kit the killing fields uh, specifically in in Cambodia um, and this different use then of branding a place in terms of whether it's aligned with its branding of global justice and here we can think of also, um, you know, apart from uh, South Africa and, and, and its move and its transition, we can think of Germany, for example, as a good ex example of a state that um, that focuses its state branding on global justice. And then um, Cambodia, where it's much more fractured um, and you actually need to look at um, the uh, the, the societal class inferences in order to understand who has the privilege of using global justice as a means of capital accumulation and who um, are, are the rich pickings, if you will, of the global justice sector and who is left with having to market the global injustice. Those are sort of the local, you know, the, the locals who, who want to... Um, uh, who want to also gain a benefit from tourists who might come and, and view the skulls in, in Cambodia. Um, uh, and so who um, is also using global justice as a form of capital accumulation, but is having to adapt that to a form of dark, dark tourism and global injustice? Yeah, I think that last point is is especially important, just thinking about how profit is drawn and attracted to these particular spaces and it's almost seen as a benefit of the global justice sector in the sense of oh well you've given these people a career the tourist industry is now doing so much better whereas actually then that bigger structural extractive process is it like you say diminished or sidelined or made invisible um and so i suppose with all that in mind, that kind of <laughs> terrifying structural um, context in mind, um, your, your last chapter kind of draws us back out again to think about challenging this. Like, how can we actually think about reforming or is there space for revolution within this global justice sector and the, uh, the relationships um, built within that? And, and I was just wondering if you could kind of take any bring us into a more positive state of whether what you've thought of as a potential way to challenge these extractive relationships? Yes, I'm often accused by my students <laughs> of being really cynical. And so this chapter is in a way for them um, because uh, the, the, the critique of these structures um, 
it doesn't end with the critique. And I think that that, that, well, that's important for me. So that final chapter in Marketing Global Justice is about the idea of what I call occupying global justice. Um, And thinking, saying that it's important to retain something about the idea of global justice. So not to dismiss it and say all of global justice is terrible, (laughs) Um, but to say that um, important movements in history have attached their struggles to this idea of global justice. So how can we think about an anti-marketized global justice? Now, I don't lay out in that chapter sort of a, a, a route, um, if you will, um, for uh, anti-marketized um, uh, global justice, but I do set out some ideas of what I think um, could be important um, in, in thinking about how to how to marginalize the market values that have been so central and the competition that has been so central in the global justice sector and how to bring forward the social values um, that have historically been important, not least in the global justice movement, which was an anti-capitalist movement at the time of um, the setting up of the WTO um, and with the Battle of Seattle and so on was an incredibly important um, uh, voice for thinking critically, going to the streets, protesting, thinking critically about um, the... Uh, distributive um, uh, and and lack of redistributive uh, policies of the international order. So in the chapter, I highlight these four tactics, um, unplugged um, global justice, despectacularized global justice, unmasked global justice and resistance global justice. And um, all of them have limitations and they also contradict in some aspects. So it's really saying that these tactics can be employed as a way of occupying the um, global justice at different times and by different um, different people or groups um, uh, involved in in struggle. Um, so um, I'll just go through them very briefly in turn. Unplugged global justice is this idea that you can you can. Uh, um, Shut down the um, uh, the, the overly marketized um, aspects of global justice. You can refuse um, to share images of um, infantilized and racialized and feminized victims. Um, it is possible to stop that circulation. Um, uh, despectacularized um, uh, global justice is about thinking. It's it's related. It's thinking much more about the contextual. Um, it's thinking about the slow and the quiet. Really um, uh, uh, highlighting that spectacle is about the attention economy. So if we if we move away from the attention economy, how can we um, how can we think about structural harm in a considered fashion and then unmasked global justice is 
almost in um, in contrast to despectacularized global justice, because unmasked global justice uses um, satire and it can use um, um, it can use spectacle, but for an anti-marketized idea of of global justice. So to um, bring um, to to highlight the stereotypes, sometimes you need to point to them and you need to point to them and point out sometimes how ridiculous they can be, right? I sometimes, when when I teach international criminal law, um, uh, I show my students clips of, say, David Crane at the um, special court for Sierra Leone giving his opening statement and they laugh. The students laugh because it's so crass. Um, it's so over the top. And sometimes you have to be able to. There's a privilege. There's an. There's a. There's an. Um, and I think that's really important to emphasize. There's. A, there's an. There's a privilege in laughing, and there's a privilege in satire. But sometimes it is um, important, and I think that it can also be done in a delicate fashion. Um, and then there's resistance, um, global justice, which is um, about really foregrounding and anti-imperialism, foregrounding agency, thinking about um, um, uh, movements in the past, groups in the past, say the, the, the Black Panthers um, have gone out there um, and used their power um, to... Um, and acknowledge the power that they have and used it um, for political struggle. Again, that is really um, in contrast or in contradiction with despectacularized and unplugged global justice in a way. But so I think it is important to say that um, d- these different different tactics can be used at, at different times. But overall, the idea is that all four of these tactics um, are... Um, turn to the idea of anti-imperialism as strategy um, and that they do not use forms of marketing in order as as means to then then um, support the the market so I say and it, it really um, uh, it, it it can come across probably as um, as obvious, but I think it's important to say this is not about a rebrand of global justice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a really important point at the end. Is it is it's a complete rethink or a readjustment of how how those processes have been built until now. That's fantastic. Thank you. We're so we're so close to being out of time now. But I was just wondering if you could just let us know what you're working on now and 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 whether. It's building on some of the uh, the points that we've been discussing today, or whether it's something completely different. Yes. Um, so um, I'll highlight two things that I'm I'm working on. Both of them were, um, build on uh, marketing global justice. One of them is a project on Rosa Luxemburg and international law with um, my colleague, my wonderful colleague Serena Natile. Um, and we are organizing some workshops on Rosa Luxemburg. Rosa Luxemburg features prominently in my final chapter in Marketing Global Justice. Um, and she was 
an amazing um, revolutionary and thinker of political economy. And um, I think there is a lot of potential in learning from her, learning from her um, from her political economy, but also learning from her activism. Um, so that's something that I'm I'm quite excited about as a that uh, as a project. And then I'm working on while I was writing marketing global justice towards the end of of, of finishing marketing global justice. I had a feeling that this this highlighting of competition as part of neoliberalism that was so key in the 1990s, I had a feeling that I was somehow starting to be out of touch with what is happening today, which I think is the monopolization rather than the centering of, of competition. Um, and I couldn't put it in the book because um, it it would have otherwise been been uh, two parts. Um, so that's my project at the moment. Thinking about how have international legal structures um, and how has the international legal order gone from focusing on competition, as I think was very central in the 1990s and has been very central in in the global justice sector, to supporting the monopolization of power and wealth and in particular there I'm interested in rentier capitalism um, and how rentier capitalism as the um, exclusive control over certain asset assets and the, the the making of those assets exclusive how that has been supported through international law it seems like um, a continuation of 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 marketing um global justice really of thinking about the 21st century and thinking about um what is different now and how has that come about again thinking about the legacies of colonialism there and in my very final, um, perhaps gratuitously, in my very final page on in marketing global justice, I mentioned climate justice because I had this sense that, or climate disaster, um, I had this sense that perhaps focusing on international criminal law, even if it does, you know, acknowledge a definition of ecocide and so on, perhaps really what we should be focusing is on um, as academics um, is um, understanding um, uh, climate disaster. And for me, understanding the international legal institutions and norms that are, are um, continuing um, climate disasters. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how rentier capitalism and climate disaster um, are enabled through international law and its legacies of um, colonialism. Wow, loads to look forward to. <laughs> now, I'm really, really intrigued by um, all of those projects. I think it'll be fascinating to see how they build on what is you know a fast a brilliant book a brilliant book marketing global justice but also thinking about that those material aspects of international criminal law but broader international um institutions that um i think it's it's a it's a brilliant project and i'm really looking forward to reading it um and, and learning more about your future projects but um i just wanted to thank you again for taking the time to talk us through your yeah your brilliant book again today um and i 
I learned so much from reading the book, so thank you. Um, but uh, thank you so much, and hopefully we'll be having you back on the show at some point to discuss any future projects. Thanks so much. Thank you. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.